God, we do, we come and we humble ourselves before your mighty hand this morning. We are asking that you would continue to watch over us and bless us in so many ways. But God, now we are asking that you would bring someone to this body that loves 6th through 12th graders. God, in your goodness to us, and your kindness to us, and in your provision, you have brought many, many families around this church. We do not have to go far to look for them. They are coming uh, to our doorstep. And God, we know this, that the youth are not just the church of tomorrow, they're the church of today, and we, we must, God, equip them to be saints to further your kingdom it starts now it doesn't start when they're 20 25 or 30 and God throughout history we've seen young men and young women at that age range fall in love with you have a heart for you have a heart for loss and revivals have started because of a youth movement so that's what we are praying but God we are asking three things the first that you would raise someone up in our midst here at Powell's Chapel. That love you and a heart for students. Whoever that may be, God, I, I ask that you would stir in their hearts this morning if they're in this building. And they'd be obedient to your call to serve you and to serve students. Next, God, if that does not happen, we ask that you would bring a family here has a heart for you and a heart for students and would volunteer their time, energy, and efforts to minister to students. And lastly, God, if those are not the way that you uh, decide to move and act and respond to our prayer requests, we ask that you would help us be faithful, diligent, and wise as we would go and look for someone to serve in that capacity. But here's what I do pray, God. I pray that you continue to bring families to our community and to this church. You continue to draw them to yourself and they'd fall in repentance and obedience and surrender to you. And out of that, God, many, many more people will come to know Christ. God, this is not just for the growth of this church. But this is the growth for the kingdom of God, your kingdom, that lost would be saved. We just want to be obedient in that. We want to ask of your wisdom on how to partake with you in that. Let us move where you are already moving. So lead us as a church. Guide us as a church. As we look for the right person or persons to minister to these youth that we have and that are coming up in this body. And now, God, we turn our attention to your word. Here in Colossians chapter 3. What a great letter this has been for us. We explore our own hearts and minds of what it means that you, Christ Jesus, are supreme in all things. That you are all sufficient for our salvation. That as you plus nothing equals everything. Our salvation. I pray that God we would continue to come to a place 
like Paul says in these verses that we have been studying and will study today. Let us put off the old through your work, put on the new. Let us mortify sin in our life. If even now, God, there's any sin in our life that would hinder us from hearing and understanding and receiving to be obedient to your word, I pray that we would ask for repentance before we ever dive into your word this morning. And then, God, I pray that as we look at your word, that we would then come with gladness that you have done a work in us that allows us to put on these characters. That you, Christ Jesus, are the ultimate example of what it looks like to be the new man. So lead us, guide us on this time in your word. Let your word do what only it can. Let's renew us. Restore us and save us. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. We are, as Jared read, we are in Colossians chapter 3, right in the middle of this letter. As I said in my prayer, I've said each week, this is a letter that Paul wrote to this small church in Colossae. This small believing church had began to be infected by false teachers, and these false teachers we're telling these new believers, these new converts, that, hey, you've received Christ, but now you've got to continue to earn your salvation. You've got to continue to do these behaviors. That it's Christ plus what you have to offer. And Paul is saying to them and saying to us, no, it's in Christ, in Christ alone that we have salvation. It's no merit of our own. It's no working of our own. It's what the power of Christ does for us. He in chapter 2, 1 and 2 sets the theology of the book or the Christology of the book. The word Christology means the study of Christ. He is painting a picture of who Christ truly is and Christ's power. And now in chapter 3 and 4, we begin to the turning point in the book. He's saying, if this is who Christ is, then this is who we must become. But it's not because we become anything. It's because of what Christ has already done in us. If you just start at chapter 3, you will think to yourself, if you read it, man, we've got a lot of work to do. But the work is already accomplished in Christ. That's why chapter 1 and 2 are so important. And now Paul says to us, we looked last week about this. There's this new self or the new man that happens when we give our life to Christ. The old is dead. The old has been buried. The old self has been buried and hung on the cross, and our new self, or as Paul says in Corinthians, we are now new creations in Christ Jesus. And now Paul says, as we enter into this new self, the old is absolutely gone. But in it being absolutely gone, there is going to be the flesh that's still at war in us. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. And so Paul is now going to say to us, and he said last week to us, hey, put those things to death. And he gives this list of things. That's not an exhausted list. That's just a few things. But Paul says primarily these two things have to be put to death in you. Sexual immorality and the way that you talk to one another. So you put those two things to death. And then he says, and this is what we'll come to today. If you have mortification of sin is what the old writers call it. There's this now there's this hole in our lives that must be filled with something. And Jesus says it this way. We 
Uh, I believe it's in Matthew. He says, if we push out these demons and we don't put something in place that doesn't allow the demons to come back, that demon that we plant brings seven more into us. So Paul was saying, if you pushed out the sin in your life, now let's put stuff in our life that the sin can't come back into our life. That's called vivification, the things that will bring life to us. Same way that you, if you are a farmer, you dig a hole. You take stuff out of the ground to put a seed into the ground to bury the seed so that life comes out of the seed. That's what Paul is saying to us. He says it this way. He says two things, the way the passage is broken up. It's first putting on the character of Christ. And then it's living in the character of Christ. So he talks about our character, but then he talks about our conduct. See, our character will produce our conduct. Conduct does not produce character. But our character will produce something in us. That is what Paul says in this passage, and that's what we'll look at this morning. So putting on the character of Christ, and then living in in the character of Christ. So our character, our conduct, we see the full example of both of these lived out in Christ. If you look at the, this list of things, this is all who Christ is. Every example that Paul gives, we can see it in the person and finished work of Christ. So this is what he says. We'll start in verse 9, and we'll go to verse 17. Remember last week we left off, do not lie to one another. I don't know why whoever decided to break the verse up, broke it up the way they did. Remember, verses were not in the original text. It was just one long letter. And then uh, several centuries later, they put verses to the text. So I don't know why they broke it up the way they did, but this is the way they did. But a better reading would be stop at verse 9a and then pick up where he says, don't lie to another, period. Seeing that you have put off the old self, with its practices. Remember those practices are what we saw in verses 5 through 9. Putting off those old practices and putting on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of God. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So what is Paul saying in those first few verses? That is verse 9 uh, through 11. But Paul is saying this. We have to have this understanding of who Christ is. That understanding of putting on the old and putting on the new. Paul is using the imagery in the Greek of putting off dirty clothes and putting on new clothes. You'll see that imagery play out in the rest of this passage. So Paul is saying, take off those old garments that are dirty and put on a new garment or a new white robe, if you will. And then he says this, how are we to do that? And what happens when we do that? When we put on the new self, we are being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. When we begin to take off the old and put on the new, it's what he says, that by the renewing of your mind, you will know the perfect will of God. And so it's by the mind and our character that life will be different for us. But where does it start? It starts with the knowledge of who? The creator. I think so many of us do not move into the character of Christ. Therefore, we will never move in the conduct of Christ because we don't truly know who 
we're trying to become like. Knowledge is so important. And what he says, he's going to say it a little later on the, in the passage in verse uh, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. So it's the knowledge of the word of Christ that must renew us. Now you can go to the Christian bookstore and get a lot of books about the character of Christ. The greatest book that you can ever read on the character of Christ is this book. And so the course, first question we must ask ourselves is, is our knowledge being renewed by the word of God? By the very words of God himself. Because the word of God reveals all that we need to know about who God is. If you do not know God's word, I would venture to say you do not truly know God. Because God has given us this primary way of knowing him, his word. That is what will renew us. So my first question to us in application, if you say you're a believer and you've come to know Christ and the old is gone and you've come to receive him as your Lord and Savior, is the knowledge of him growing? Is the knowledge of the image of God growing in you? Because if not, what Paul has to say about the rest of this passage will make no sense to us and it will not matter to us. Unless your knowledge, my knowledge, the knowledge of this church is growing to become more like our creator. That's where Paul starts. Then Paul goes on and says it this way. After the knowledge that has been given to us and is renewed in us by his word. He says there's no distinction. There's no barrier. He says Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, Barian, Scythian, slave, free, or, or any of these. But Christ is all and in all, there is no barrier in our salvation. The, the way the old children's song said it this way, red, yellow, black, and white, they're all precious to his sight. What Paul is saying is, let nothing hindering all of us from gathering to Christ, black or white, your religion, your ethnicity, your political uh, convictions. Paul is saying to us, let us as a church, with a gathering believers have no barriers to hold us back from knowing and growing in our knowledge of God and acting like him and becoming like him. Because there will be a day that you and I will stand in heaven and it will be all races from all over the world praising the knowledge of God. And so Paul is saying, let us start here. Let us start here on this planet. So is that true for us? church because he says Christ is all and in all there's no distinction every man every woman every child of every race uh, of every demographic if they know Christ have accepted Christ that Christ the Christ lives wholly in them not based on color or finances or anything else Christ is all and he's in all. Do we believe that, church? And now he gets into the heart of the message. He says this, since you've put off the old man, you've put on the new man, then put on then, period, or comma, he's going to give these three things, who we are, once we come to know Christ, and then he gives this list. 
So he's going to pause. So when you read it, pause those three things. He's not saying put on chosen ones, holiness, and the love. He's saying those are characteristics of those who have already come to know Christ. So Paul says there's three things that make us distinct. The first is this, that we are chosen by God. So at our salvation, we've been chosen by God. God chose us, Paul says in Ephesians, before the foundations of the world. So we are chosen by God, which ought to do something in our hearts to be chosen by God. The God in his goodness, God in his sovereignty, God in his wisdom looked down on us and chose us out of a wicked world. So we believe that we've been chosen by God. He chose us before we chose him. It's his choosing us that allowed us to choose him. That ought to stir our affections for him. Do you believe that you've been chosen by God this morning? See, if you believe you've been chosen by God, then your character will change. You've been chosen by God. Another way to put it is this. You see, when a young man comes in and plays football, the day he is drafted, he now becomes what? If he's drafted by any team, he now has to take on the persona who drafted him, or it's not going to work well. He can't be who he used to be in his college team with now his pro team. He's got to, at some moment, understand he's been chosen by this team, therefore he must conform to this new team. That's true for us. If you've been chosen by God, you know you've been chosen by God, then we must conform to who God has called us to, and we're going to get to how that happens. Because we know now, through our knowledge of God, we now want to become more like God. But it starts with you and I understanding we've been chosen by God. You've first been chosen by God. And then he says, next, not only have you been chosen, but you are also holy. The word holy means this. Because we've been chosen by God, we're holy or we are set apart. We are to be set apart from the world. Because of being chosen by God, we are holy. That holiness is nothing that you have done. It's because of what Christ has done for you at the day of your salvation. You have now been clothed with righteousness and holiness at being chosen by God. So are you been chosen by God? And now are you acting as one who's set apart from the world? And now he gives the linchpin to it all. He said, you're chosen, you're loved. Why? Because you've been beloved by God. You are loved by God. It's in God's love for you that he sets you apart, and it's God's love for you that he chose you. Of no merit on your own. It's simply God's love for us. So Paul is saying, hey, you're going to put these things on, but remember, you're chosen, you're holy, and you're beloved by God. And if that is true for us, then the rest of the text will make so much sense, and it will be easy. I'm not saying it will be simple. It won't be easy. Because it will be a reminder of our knowledge that we're growing more and more like Christ. And now Paul says, these are the characteristics that we must put on. And these are the characteristics that we see over and over and over in Christ. He starts off and says it this way. The first one is this. 
put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, what? Compassionate hearts. What does that word mean? You see, to have compassion means that we don't only have a physical response to somebody, but our physical response is motivated by an emotional response. You see, I can go help a lot of people, but if my heart isn't stirred to help people, there's no compassion in it. It's just an action. And so Paul is saying, let your heart be stirred with compassion towards other people. And so do we have compassionate hearts, church? He says, not only are we to be, have compassionate hearts that stir something in us, that motivate us, but now he says, in that motivation, let us have kindness. Kindness, we see one of the greatest illustrations of kindness in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there's three people that passed by that young, that man that was beat up on the side of the road. They were all religious people to begin with. But then the enemy, the Samaritan, walks up on this man that's in the ditch, that's been beat up, and he has compassion, and he also has kindness for this man. The kindness is what took that man, and the compassion is what took that man, put that man on the horse, and took him into, a, into the doctor and said, hey, whatever he needs, provide it, and I will pay for it. You see, kindness will always cost you something. So do you have compassionate hearts? Do we have kind hearts? The next thing he says is this. We're to have compassionate hearts, kind hearts, but we must also have humility. Humility is simply this. It's an understanding of who we are and who we aren't. Healthy humility says this. I know all the ways that God created me, and I know all my shortcomings that come with that. I'm not too much, and I'm not too little. I'm not too grandiose, and I'm not too weak. I'm simply who God has called me to be. Do we have healthy humility? Do you know who you are, what Christ, and how Christ has uniquely gifted you? You see, because we don't have healthy humility, we don't know who Christ has created us to be, then we'll go after all the things that we may not be good at. God has uniquely gifted every single one of us in unique ways. If I, in my uh, grandiosity, want to become more and more like you because of what I see and how God works in you, want your gifts to be my gifts, then I miss how God created me. God's only gifted me in a handful of ways. But here's what's true. God has gifted you in a handful of ways, which means you need me as much as I need you, which means we can become the church. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. We are all members, and he says it here in the text, we are all members of one body. Let us play our role that God has uniquely gifted us to play, but that can only happen through humility. If you're an eye, just simply be an eye. Don't try to be a foot. It will make us as the church look ridiculous. Let us have healthy humility. He goes on to say this, after humility, let us have meekness or gentleness. That word meekness means this. It's power under control. I think a lot of times when we hear meekness, we hear weakness. 
But the Greek word for meek is to have all this power that's under control. It's the word picture of a horse. I'm terrified of horses because they're massive animals, because they have a lot of power. And BJ in the room works with horses. Robert works with horses. A good horse has a lot of power, but the rider is what makes the horse a good rider. Because that horse comes under submission of the one who's riding it. And so a horse, a great horse, is a meek horse. That's why wild horses terrify me. Because you don't know what they're going to do because they don't know what they're going to do. But do we in this church, are we meek people? Are we, do we have power that's under control? You see, Paul says this, the Holy Spirit resides in all of us if we're believers. That is a whole lot of power. But if we don't let the Holy Spirit reign us in with that power, we would become dangerous people. So Paul says, let us be meek people. Have power that's under control. The next he says is this, let us be patient. The the Greek word means long-tempered. Another way to put it is this. Do you have a long fuse or a short fuse? I know for me, this is one of the places that the Lord is stirring in me. There's often places that I have a long fuse, but there's a lot of places in my life that have a short fuse, a very short temper. I lack patience in a lot of places. Do we have patience? The next thing that Paul says is this. Let us bear with one another. That means to endure, to hold in spite of persecution, threats, injuries, indifferences, or complaints, and not retaliate. Do we bear with one another? Like when things are done to you, do you want retaliation to the one that's done something to you? Like are you plotting and planning? Paul says, no, let us bear with one another. And the last is this. Let us forgive each other. That means to be gracious. Let us forgive what has been done to us. Paul says it this way at the end of that text. Forgive each other. How? How are we to forgive each other? As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And so when it's hard to forgive somebody, Paul is reminding us, remember how God has forgiven you. All the grievances, all the sin that you have done against the holy God, He has forgiven you. So when it's hard to forgive, because it is so hard to forgive, Paul says, let us be reminded of how Christ forgave us. A sidebar on that for us is this. Forgiveness doesn't mean we have to forget what has been done to us. Jesus tells us that. There will be a day all that we have been forgiven, we still have to give an account for. So if someone's harmed you, you may never forget that. But can you live in a way that is at peace with you, with peace with them? Because if we don't live with peace, and he's going to say this in a moment, if we don't live with forgiveness, that will eat our soul 
I don't know if anyone else in the room, it was true for me. I was harmed by someone at the church that I came from. And for years, even when I came here, there was just this bitterness in my soul towards that person. And I would see that person, I would just want revenge, or I'd want God to get revenge. And I'd be mad at God for the way I, it seemed that God was blessing them. And I just began to cry out to God, I don't want to live this way, I don't want to live this way, I don't want to live this way. And through the work of Christ, he allowed me to forgive that person. Now, I don't want to ever have a friendship with that person ever again. But I don't have to live with bitterness and resentment in my heart towards that person. I don't have to wake up thinking about that person. You know how relieving that is? That's what Paul is saying to us. And he's saying, why are we to live these things? Why are we to live with compassionate hearts, with kindness, with humility, with meekness, with patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another? Here is the reason why. It's because if we're ever going to live, he says it in verse 14, we are to live in perfect harmony. And in verse 15, he says, in one body. See, what Paul is saying in these, this is how we are to live first and primarily in the church, body of Christ. Is our character in this body marked with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing one another, and forgiving each other. It starts here in this room before we ever go out into the world. Is that true for us, church? Are we a church that lives in harmony with one another. I know this to be true because of God's word. If we do not live at harmony with one another in God, in fellowship with him, then anything we pray for will never come to fruition until we make amends and live in harmony with one another. Because God's more concerned with us praying for harmony than he is about a youth pastor. Are we in this church living with harmony? How is our character being shaped? He goes on to say it this way. Now that you are putting on these things, what holds all these things together is our conduct, verses 14 through 17. 14 through 17 says this, and above all these things, above all the ones that I just said, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now Paul says this, let us live in the character of Christ. What are we to live first and foremost? He says, 
above all these things, we are to love one another. Here's what Paul says. He says there's no way to have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if the one thing that holds them all together isn't love. If you do not have love, the the rest of it will not happen. This won't happen if we don't have love. Paul says it this way in Corinthians chapter 13. He says, love, if we don't have love, we're nothing but gongs and clanging and clashing of cymbals. We sound ridiculous. At the very end of that passage, he lists all the things of what love is. He says this, there's faith, hope, and love, and above all these is love. Paul goes after love. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, he lists out the fruit of the Spirit. You know which one he starts with first? Love. Many theologians believe if you don't have love, then you can't have any of the other fruit of the Spirit. Love is the linchpin that holds all things together. Why? Because God himself is love. So everything that binds us together, our conduct, must be rooted in love. If we do not have love, we'll have no character of God because God himself is love. If we don't have that, then we'll have no character that's like Christ. The word picture is this. It's the most outer garment that holds all the other garments of what he said. That's the outer garment. It's what protects everything else is love. It holds all things together. Do we have love? Then he says this. Not only do we need love, but we also must have peace. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Peace is this, is the concept of an agreement, a pact, a treaty, a bond that is an attitude and a rest of security. Do we have security in Christ? Does the peace of Christ dwell in you? And how is the peace of Christ to dwell in us? It is to what? He says, to rule you. He says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. That rule, the word rule there in the Greek means, it has the word picture of an umpire. The same way an umpire, when he is at a game, that umpire, that referee, rules the entire field. He's looking at everything. He's making sure everything stays in the bounds of the game that's meant to be played. And so what Paul is saying to us, there's this, thing called a heart and in that heart there's these two things that are at war against each other it's the flesh and the spirit they're at war against each other he says yeah but the thing that will bring bring you a place of peace is when the peace of what christ rules your heart because when we have christ's peace in our heart he rules over both places the the flesh and the spirit and so for us Is the peace of Christ ruling and umpiring our hearts? So we must have love. We must have peace because in love and peace, we are called to be one body. And in being called and we have love and peace, what is love and peace always going to produce in the church? Thankfulness. Are we thankful for every member 
that sits in these pews? Or do we see them as enemies? Or do we see them uh, getting in the way of our agenda, our wants, our desires? Or do we let the love of God, the peace of Christ, rule us in this church, and therefore we're thankful for every person that sits in all the pews? Because we are one body. We're not enemies against one another. We are one body created in Christ. And he later on will tell us for the furtherance of the gospel in a lost world. Not in this text, but other texts. And then he goes on to say this. So we are to let the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, and what else? Let the word of Christ. So we have the love of Christ in us, the peace of Christ in us. But now Paul says the only way you're going to have the love of Christ and the peace of Christ is if the word of Christ dwells in you. We know the word of God. The word of God, Jesus says this in John. He was the word and the word became flesh and the word dwelt among us. Christ is the very words of God. We know from Genesis chapter 1, not only is Christ the word of God, but the Spirit speaks over us. So it's Christ and the Word of God and the Spirit that lives in us. Is that dwelling in you? Know what the word dwell means in the Greek? It means to take up residence, to have a home in you. What what that means is there's no place that's off limits for the Spirit of God to dwell in your life. He is not a visitor. You see, if you came to my house, there's certain parts of my house because you're a visitor it's going to be kind of awkward for you. Most people are like, hey, let me go into the master bathroom. It's like, yeah, it's kind of off limits. Right? No one's like, hey, I want to see your master bathroom. It was like, hey, where's the guest bathroom? But when Christ, the word of Christ dwells in us, we say to Christ, hey, all the hearts are yours to dwell, every nook and cranny. And I would ask us this morning, is the word of Christ dwelling in all aspects of your heart? Are there certain places that are off limits to him. Because if there's any place that are off limits to him, then I promise this, your conduct and your character will not become like Christ. And so is the word of God dwelling in you? Is it dwelling in our church? And then Paul says this, when it dwells in us, then it's going to come out of us. And he says it in four ways. The way the word of Christ dwells in us and will come out of us is this, that we will be a body that does four things. We'll teach one another, we'll admonish one another, we'll we'll sing to one another, and we'll do spiritual songs to one another. What is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about four unique things. The first is this, the teaching is the positive aspect of the Word of God. It's the place of exaltation. That we are to teach one another the truth of God. Not just me, but all of us this building ought to be teaching one another the truths of God. If I'm the only teacher in this building, we don't have enough teachers. If the Sunday school teachers are the only one, that's not what Paul's saying. All of us in this body are to teach one another, to bring exhortation or encouragement to one another. But he doesn't stop there. He then says this, we're to admonish one another. What does that mean? There's the positive of teaching, there's the negative of teaching. The, the, the admonishing is there's correction with God's word. So if there's anything in your life, if there's anything in my life, I want you to admonish me with the word of God. Because I want to become more and more like Christ. The only way that happens is through encouragement, 
and correction? Are we admonishing one another? The second is this. Are we singing hymns to one another? Are we expressing the praises of God over each other? That is one of the reasons that we do corporate worship, that we would sing praises to God. Are we doing that together? The last is this. What is he talking about? Spiritual songs. This is what Paul says in the Greek. It means this, that we all must must be teaching and speaking our testimonies over one another. The word testimony does not simply mean there the moment of our salvation. But all of us in this room ought to be able to stand up this morning and give a testimony of God's goodness in your life in this past week, not what he did 17 years ago in saving you. All of us, if I had an open mic, I ought to say to all the believers in this room, hey, do you have a word of testimony from the Lord that God has been speaking to you? We ought to know that because the word of God is dwelling in you. If the word of God is dwelling in you, it's going to push out a testimony of what God's doing in you. And that is what Paul is saying to us. Then he leads with this last bit of information. Because when we live out the character of Christ, and we live in the conduct of Christ, and we live those things out, then, he, then we can do exactly what he says in verse 17. And now whatever you do in word or deed, deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Because we live in the character and the conduct of Christ, we are able to do whatever we want, whenever we want to do. Because it's what I read in Psalm chapter 37. We've delighted ourselves in the Lord. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our heart. Therefore, it's free game to do whatever we want to do because then we'll have this desire not to sin against him. And there's freedom that comes with that. So my question to us in closing is this. If we were to take a test this morning, how are we doing in the character and conduct of Christ? First, individually and then corporately. Therefore, the next question would be this. Are we becoming more like Christ in our character and in our conduct? And the last is this. As we grow in our character and our conduct of Christ and we're becoming more like Christ, are we being separate from the world as we put off the old and put on the new? Let us pray to God. God, I'm grateful for this passage. I'm grateful for the encouragement that comes with this passage. I pray that it would be true. As we are your chosen ones, we are holy and beloved, that we would live with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another just as you've forgiven us. And may your character lead us to a conduct that loves in Christ, has a peace in Christ, and may your word richly dwell in us. And therefore, may we do all things to your glory. Lead us, guide us, give us hope. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, you, you do not know what it means to put off the old and have the new, uh, that is called salvation. We want to uh, share that more with you. Come find me. Come find one of our deacons. We'd love to share.
the greatest news, the gospel with you. If you're here this morning, you've heard this and something's stirring your heart, that you would say, I, I don't live out the character and conduct of Christ. And I need that in my life. Come find me. I'll be at the altar. The altar is open for prayer. If you've come with someone and you want to talk to them, find them. Find me. Find one of the deacons. We'd love to pray over you and for you. Let us go now and worship. Thank you.